Hi, hello, bonjour, namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I am your host, Anne Mulatala. I am super excited about this episode with my guest, Dr. Andrea Wozniki. Andrea is an accomplished academic and teacher. She's also a brand marketer and the host of a podcast called Talk About Talk. And Andrea's passion is communication, which is a subject very close to my heart, whether interpersonal or consumer marketing. So in this episode, we discuss communication skills, consumer motivation, archetypes, what is a personal brand and why we should all consider looking after ours very carefully. And of course, we do talk about why people talk. I had a really fantastic time chatting to Andrea. So I am delighted to bring you this super special interview with Dr. Andrea Wozniki. Enjoy. Andrea, welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much, Anne, for the invitation. It's really a privilege to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Same here. I have to say, since discovering you and your podcast, I was lucky enough to find some time over the weekend, particularly in the last couple of days, to dig into a lot of the the last, let's say, 10, 15 episodes that you did. And I'm absolutely loving it. And you're very generous with the resources, by the way, that you offer and the show notes that you have on your website. So to get us started, I would love for you to tell me about you, about your life journey. I'm incredibly curious. Well, I'm not going to bore you and start at that beginning, except to say that I am Canadian. I'm in Toronto right now. But when I was growing up, we moved around a lot within Canada. And I did an undergraduate, an MBA, and a doctoral degree all in business, focusing a lot on marketing and on strategy. And I also worked at Kraft Foods in brand marketing. So I really feel like that was kind of the foundation for my career. And I absolutely loved working there. But then I had the opportunity after I earned my MBA to go to Harvard Business School. And I worked for a phenomenal brand marketing professor. And she and I were writing cases. We wrote tons of cases. We wrote the case about Martha Stewart. We wrote the case about Pokemon when Pokemon was on the front cover of Time Magazine. I remember talking to the CEO and we wrote, I think, seven cases and teaching notes. But after I'd been working with her for about two months, I confessed to her that I wanted her job. And then she wrote me a reference letter and I got into the doctoral program at Harvard Business School. And I focused on my real passion, which is understanding why people talk. So my focus in marketing is not about needlessly convincing people of products that they otherwise didn't know they need, which is kind of, I guess, the negative slant on marketing. I'm really, really passionately interested in understanding what makes people tick generally, but specifically what makes them talk and why they talk and why they don't talk. So we can get into that a little bit later. But after I graduated, I worked at the University of Toronto as a marketing professor there. And I taught MBA and undergraduate students. And I love that as well. And I've done some board work and some consulting work. And then a couple years ago, 
I started Talk About Talk, which is a learning platform focused on helping people, specifically ambitious managers and executives, improve their communication skills. And I'm really in my happy place because I'm doing research, I'm interviewing people, I'm meeting fascinating people like you. And I'm also teaching executives who are ambitious and they're looking for some insight and expertise and to develop their skills. And I get so much satisfaction out of helping people do that. So that's my journey. That sounds wonderful. If we had more time, I'd love to know more about your research. But let's talk about coaching around communication in in particular. This is one of my favorite subjects and I have been writing a lot recently around mindful communication. So this is a topic that feels very present for me. So tell me what kind of clients do you service or what are the needs that you're able to meet for them? And I'd love for you to explain to my listeners, why do you think people need to consider taking a coach and and what that could bring to them? Okay. First of all, I share your insight and your passion about how communication skills are significant And we need to really pay attention to them. In other words, we need to be mindful of what we're saying and how we're saying things and then also how we're interpreting other people's communication, right? You asked me, why is it important? Well, communication is a skill. We don't come out of the womb really understanding how to communicate except for crying to get what we need, right? And then slowly over time, we learn. And I think many adults kind of stop learning their communication skills unless they are mindful or aware of that skill as something that can help elevate their performance in so many ways, right? And we are communicating all the time, sometimes purposely, but mostly not. And I'm here, hopefully, to help people as a resource to make it more purposeful and then therefore more effective. And in a business context, so my target market is young and kind of mid-career business people, executives, professionals who are probably done their formal education, but they realize that if they continue to really explicitly work on their skills, they'll have a competitive advantage. So I've talked to some people about like, this can be your secret weapon. For example, the experience of being in a meeting room with people that they know and don't know. And there's someone who stands out as being really exemplary in terms of their skill and their sort of acumen. And then if you really think about it, very often you can attribute that to their communication skills. So what I'm offering right now, you know, during the pandemic, one thing that's really taken off is online corporate workshops. So I've been doing Zoom meetings between, I would say, nine up to over 50 people at a time and taking them through some general and specific skills. So for example, one of the general skills that I really like to help people work on, in fact, I call it one of the three superpowers of leaders, is communication. So I run them through lots of stories and background. I tell them an absolutely true story of when I was a young brand manager at Kraft and I had the honor to be asked to speak at the national sales meeting. So I was thrilled, but also horrified. Long story short, it was a complete disaster. And when I got off the stage, my boss, who didn't mince words, said to me, are you okay? I almost had to go out there and rescue you. Your face is redder than your hair. And I was like, no, I'm not okay. And I I promised myself in that moment, that is never, ever going to happen to me again. But instead of saying, I'm going to avoid that, I said, I'm going to 
I guess this is a bit of an overused term, but I'm going to lean into it. So I was like, anytime I have an opportunity, and I said this to her, anytime there's an opportunity, I'm going to raise my hand and I hope you'll support me in this, that I, I want to keep doing this until I perfect it. And the truth is there's no such thing as perfection, right? But I keep honing my communication skills and my confidence. And I'm also actively collecting insights and tips to help other people do the same. So that's what I share in that sort of general corporate workshop. And then lately, there's also been a lot of interest in specific skills. For example, leading online meetings and getting people engaged and participating in online meetings. So that's really fun too, because there's certain tips of things that meeting facilitators and managers can and should do to make people want to sit up and pay attention and then participate and engage in the meeting. And I always say, if you didn't need to be there, it shouldn't be a meeting. It could just be an email, like an FYI. And, you know, and we are meeting participants, not attendees for that reason. Beyond the workshops, I'm coaching many hundreds and thousands of people, I guess, through my newsletter and the podcast, which is all free content, but I'm also doing one-on-one coaching. And, you know, that's different with each client. Listening to you, there's a question that's emerging for me. And the first one would be, do you see a major difference in communication gaps between men and women? Oh, yes. The interesting thing, at least for me, is that people talk about this all the time. I need to do more research on this to really understand it. I mean, I have the perspective of someone who has kind of the basic psychology background and a woman who is focused on communication, but I haven't specifically examined the literature and the research on this topic. But, you know, anecdotally, even just in talking to female colleagues who I'm collaborating with, and they'll say, well, you know, we, and by we, they mean us females, right? They'll be like, oh, well, we seem to suffer, for example, from the imposter syndrome. And we always undersell ourselves. And if we demonstrate emotion, people perceive it as an angry, outrageous, emotional female, as opposed to a powerful male, right? And my personal anecdotal experience is absolutely different, but that's something that in fact is on my list of topics that I'm really excited to pursue. The reason it came up for me is I've been studying with a coach called Tara Moore. I don't know if you're familiar with her. No. She's written a great book called Playing Big, which is essentially really targeted towards women. And she talks quite at length. And I'm right in the middle of that chapter, actually, in, in the workshop. At the ways that women are, I would say, groomed since our school days to do good work, but we're not told to put ourselves out there. So for example, I know that for me, I struggle really badly to make my work visible Mm. because it's not that I have imposter syndrome because I know what I know. I mean, you know, not in everything, but I have a relative amount of self-confidence when it comes to work and consulting, but putting my work out there, it's a real struggle. I remember I did a course online about four years ago and I noticed a major difference between nationalities in the way that we interact in, maybe not so much in person because that was obviously an online course and it was hosted on Zoom, but it was fascinating because Americans, so I'd put Canadians as North Americans in the louder ones, the ones that would immediately speak up and raise their hands and throw themselves into the conversation. Australians very much so as well, but Europeans were incredibly 
reticent to participate and so were Asians as far as I could tell. So it was uh, really fascinating. Related to that point, you know, of course there's differences between men and women, if nothing else, because of how we've been socialized, which relates to another factor that obviously impacts our communication, which is what culture we were brought up in. And there's societies that are more collectivistic versus individualistic. And I heard a quote recently that the tall poppy syndrome is sort of almost becoming a cliche, but it's when someone starts to really excel and they pop up within the field, you know, like they grow taller, they're going to get chopped down by everybody else. And this person that I heard talking about it said, every country that he's worked in describes their own culture that way. And they all think they're the only one that's like that, except for maybe Americans right? Americans are like, they're proud of their tall poppies and they prop them up maybe even. Of course, that's a generalization. But the point is, you know, there's the male-female differences, there's the cultural differences, there's all sorts of factors, right? Yeah. So that goes back to communication skills and then listening skills, which I said earlier that there were three communication superpowers. And right now I would say that the three communication superpowers are listening, confidence, and storytelling. But originally, like just over a year ago, I was thinking really listening is the thing. And listening includes being empathetic to the person's context. So that would include their gender or their sex, right? And where they're from and who and what they're representing and all of their experiences. And then what they're saying explicitly and also what they're saying implicitly and what they're not saying. So this is back to the point is it is a lifelong journey learning communication skills, right? There's so much to learn. Oh, so much. And I feel like all of this is fascinating. So you focus mostly on talk. Let's say that's really the area that I feel like you've been working from. I find when I work with clients as well, that I also need to make them pay attention to their body language. Because there's so much communication that comes through our eyes, the way that we hold ourselves, where we put our hands in a meeting, you know? Yeah. So one of the first podcast episodes that I did was with a friend of mine, Cynthia Barlow, who is actually an executive coach and a body language expert. Since then, I've been doing a lot of thinking and writing about body skills. And I would narrow it down because otherwise it can feel overwhelming, like body language. Oh my. And then suddenly you're so self-conscious of everything, right? Like absolutely everything. So... I just say, focus on three things, your hands, your eyes, and your posture. And I have advice about all three of those things that, you know, if you're sitting there and you're feeling nervous and you want to feel more confident and be perceived as more confident, running through the basics in terms of what are you doing with your hands, your eyes, where are you looking and your posture. That sounds fantastic. I would also recommend to people or give them the homework of watching, if they haven't seen it yet, the TED Talk by Amy Cuddy. And it's about body language and how it shapes who we are. Yeah, that comes up a lot when I talk about posture. If you Google it, there are a lot of detractors from her research and her presentation. But to me, it's really common sense, right? That if someone is expansive and taking up a lot of space, then they will appear all else equal to be confident. So she talks about standing up like a superhero, right? Like puffing up your chest and and doing like the Wonder Woman pose. But I say, just think about man spreading, right? Probably unconsciously or non-consciously trying to demonstrate that he's confident. You know, there is research that shows 
if you smile, your body believes that you are happy and happy endorphins affects your blood chemistry, right? So endorphins will be released and you'll then feel happier. And I think the analogy there is if you act confident, if you take up space, if you stand up tall and take a deep breath, you will feel more confident. And also the people around you will perceive you that way. So then there's that self-reinforcing. So to me, it's a no-brainer. To me, it's a no-brainer as well. Since then, I've always paid a lot of attention to it. Where people in meetings, for example, when they become insecure, uncomfortable in any way, oftentimes will raise one or both hands around their neck and not realize that they're almost clutching themselves. And it's interesting, or it can be a bit disconcerting when you're aware of it and you are the lead in the meeting and you kind of start to wonder what's going wrong. Right. Well, (laughs) why is he or she so uncomfortable? But that's obviously to be unpacked one-on-one, I suggest. And so this goes back to the point though of mindful communication, right? So we start to internalize these insights and we start to develop some of these skills. And then you're at a point where you're leading an online meeting and you look at your screen and you see in a couple of the squares that people are grabbing their neck or they're touching their hair and you actually will develop the skill to be able to say, okay, these people are feeling uncomfortable. So maybe I'm pushing too hard on this one thing and maybe we need to shift back or maybe I need to address it, you know, specifically. So that's a beautiful example or illustration of how really focusing on your communication skills can help your career. Yeah, I really agree with you there. So Talk About Talk, great name, by the way, is first and foremost a podcast. And you've done almost 70 episodes, I want to say, which is, you know, substantial. And you also call it a learning platform. Do you want to talk to us a bit about it? So I actually came up with the name when I was writing my application to participate in Seth Godin's podcasting fellowship. So I applied to be in his first fellowship, which was two and a half years ago. He did say in the email that he was hoping that it would be a cohort full of young students. And at the time I was thinking, well, I'm kind of a lifelong student. (laughs) I'm not a student though. I was a consultant and working on boards and stuff. Anyway, I wrote the application and one of the questions was, you don't have to have your idea nailed down, but if you have any ideas, please share them. So I started describing what I said kind of at the beginning of this interview about how I'm really obsessed with understanding how and why people talk or don't talk. And I'm really interested also in helping them become better talkers. So I said, essentially, this podcast would be Talk About Talk and literally The second that I typed it in, I went and checked whether the trademark was available. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it was, and it's now secured. But one thing that is probably not necessarily important for everybody else, but it is really important for me is that Talk About Talk, I don't think of it as a podcast. I think of Talk About Talk as a learning platform, as you just said, where there are many resources available so people can consume whatever media is most effective and efficient for them in their journey in improving their communication skills. So for many people, it's the podcast, but for others, it's the free weekly newsletter. And for others, it's these online corporate workshops. And for others, it's one-on-one training or whatever it is, online courses. I have one on my website right now and it's free. It's a course on five hacks to conquer your email because I did a podcast on 
basically that very topic. And so many people were emailing me saying, thank you, that really helped. And I thought I should create an online course for this. I'm working on one right now on my work on confidence. So sharing that with people and then personal branding and yeah, lots of stuff's coming down the pipeline. That sounds awesome. Actually, I have to say, I'm sure that a lot of other people are not like that, but I do view actually all the podcasts I listen to as learning platforms too. When I think about it, whether it's Seth Godin or Debbie Millman or Brené Brown, or even obviously the TED Radio Hour, which is fantastic. So I just want to clarify, I think of the podcast as one element on the platform. This might be getting into semantics, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Well, we're talking about communication, so semantics is important. Yeah. So I think that this really was cemented in my mind when I was in the fellowship and Seth and Alex De Palma were asking us to articulate why we're doing this. And he was said, you know, it could be a hobby and that's perfectly fine. It could be because you're just interested in exploring a certain topic and you want to learn more and then you're sharing that with others, or it might be part of your business. And for me, it was two things. It was, I want to teach and I want this to be like a free material that people can access that bring them into this world called Talk About Talk where they can learn more communication skills. So that's my thinking there. I think that's very helpful because for anybody who's listening to us, who's considering a podcast for their company or for themselves, it's one of the explorations that I think that they need to consider doing first. Yeah. I've heard people say, oh, so it's like your business card. I'm like, well, it's a highly interactive business card, I guess. You know, I feel like that may be an overused term. People say that also about your LinkedIn profile. It's an interactive business card. And maybe a podcast is your auditory business card. But basically, these are all media resources, right? That's funny. You're making me think about that now. (laughs) I'm thinking about my podcast being like the meeting room in my office where we can sort of Uh, lounge and have a conversation. So uh, I can bring anybody around and we're there. And so we are going to entertain a conversation. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Thanks. You helped me get there. (laughs) So I read a little bit about your doctoral thesis at Harvard Business School. And the main subject was word of mouth as self-enhancement. And I found that absolutely fascinating. Now, I didn't have so much time to dig into it, but obviously I do come from a business and communication and PR background. So could you tell me more about this? Sure. I'll give you the cold notes version. Before I even moved down to Boston and I was working for this branding guru, Professor Susan Fournier, before that all happened and when I was still working at Kraft, I started to be really enamored or I would say obsessed with this phenomenon of word of mouth or buzz marketing that was going around. And how do you get consumers to think about your brand so much that they're talking about it with their friends and then how that has a more significant impact than branding messages, right? Because they're credible to put simply. And then as I started digging into the research, there was some academic research, but not a lot, you know, lists of motivations and kind of anecdotal things. And some of it was looking at positive versus negative word of mouth. And people, I guess, again, anecdotally were referencing this fact that negative word of mouth, so people basically warning you about products that they consumed was so much more prevalent. And I did a ton of research and I found that There was research conducted, I can't remember if it was in the 50s or the 60s, by Coca-Cola, where they concluded that it wasn't that 
there was more negative word of mouth. It was just that it was recalled more. So people would say, do you remember hearing people talk about brands and yes, and what was the message? And then it was, well, they warned me against buying this car or they warned me against going to this restaurant or whatever. So and that really fascinated me. So I decided that this was going to be the area where I was going to focus on for my dissertation. And I remember sitting in my apartment as a student and doing some reading for a psychology seminar that I had to go to. And I was reading these articles about self and identity. And I read this article about self-verification. And it was the idea that people act not to improve their reputation, but to validate what they believe their identity is. Wow. And this light bulb went off in my head and I was like, I wonder if word of mouth is about people validating their identity or maybe it's about them enhancing their identity. Like maybe they're just trying to kind of show off and they talk about things that they're critical of and they talk about things that they've experienced that are positive. And long story short, my research in labs using real life data, we used online data from Amazon, all the ratings and reviews. And also from doing controlled experiments with scenarios where we were manipulating factors, we found that in a two-by-two matrix where you have either a positive or a negative experience, so you're either satisfied or dissatisfied, whether you consider yourself to be an expert in that area or not, it's the experts who had a positive experience where the word of mouth is off the charts, Hmm. like multiple times what the word of mouth would be in the other boxes. And then we started reverse engineering it and we pulled out certain factors and we demonstrated that when people believe that they have a positive identity or expertise in a certain area. So for example, one that was kind of easy for us to imagine was restaurants. So you know, you have a friend in your friend group who is really good at choosing restaurants and he or she always knows the hottest new restaurant to go to in your town or city Mm -hmm. and they know what restaurant to stay away from and they know how to order and they know what to ask in terms of where to sit and all that stuff, right? So those people, when they have a positive restaurant experience, they talk so much. They talk so much. And they also mention, well, yeah, I chose the restaurant and whatever. Mm -hmm. So the long story short is that I called my dissertation talking about brands, talking about me. So like, I want you to know that I'm an expert in this area is really what's going on. And so based on that, now I have this thing, I did this with my book club because somebody was saying, oh, I need to get a new car. Does anybody know what car I should get? And, and then people were like, oh, you should get the car I have. Oh, you should get the car I have. And I was like, wow, that's people self-enhancing. They are talking about themselves. So I said, no, new question. If the brand of car that you drive was not available, what car would you buy? Right? So, I mean, there's all sorts of implications of it, but that's one that I see over and over and over again. People validating their own experiences actually as a mean of implicitly validating their own decisions. Absolutely fascinating. I'm not sure what year it was because some of the research I found online dates between 2004 to 2015 or around then. How do you imagine it evolve with the rise of social media? And when I listen to you, it sounds like you're describing influences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I was doing my dissertation research and I was trying to design these experiments, oh my goodness, <laughs> there was no such thing as an influencer. You know, it wasn't that long ago, but the world is changing so quickly, right? Yeah. We thought, you know, we were so avant-garde by pulling this Amazon data. 
which was publicly available and using it and running a quantifiable assessment on this huge data set that validated what we were saying in our controlled experiments. I think it absolutely relates. And I was interested in understanding, so do people act differently when they're online? And there's tons of research showing that when people, for example, consciously create an avatar and they go online and they kind of act like trolls, over the longer term, they almost always revert back to their true selves, their offline or in real life selves. So, Wow. I was trying to understand why this sticks so much, right? Also, how do they become so powerful? And I'm thinking that one of the reasons I think that they get to touch others so much is probably through the emotion, right, that they feel towards the brand or the experience and how they tell that story. So I'm guessing that word of mouth is also potentially so powerful because of the storytelling behind it. Yeah, and I believe you said the word relationship there. So, you know, for example, these influencers who are flooded, let's be honest, with products, these influencers are choosing which products to quote unquote personally promote. So it's almost like a hybrid, right? Between true word of mouth, where it's unadulterated recommendations and warnings with your friends, because it is a commercial platform and people know that they have been offered these products for free or they've maybe even been paid, but they need to stay true to their brand to some extent. You can imagine that their brand could be that they are authentic and they are whatever. They like natural products versus someone who's more out there, more risk prone as opposed to risk averse, mm. talking about and recommending products in a different way. But, but they're actually using the precise phenomenon that I was studying where they are demonstrating their expertise by recommending things to their audiences. Yeah. And back to the relationship thing, the Professor Susan Fournier, who I was working with, who I really can't say enough positive things about, she really established all of the academic research on, she did her dissertation on it, in fact, on consumers' relationships with their brands and how people often personify the product and then also they personify the relationship that they have with the product and they feel emotional attachments, they feel loyalty. These are all things that we experience with other humans, right? We feel disappointment, we feel anger sometimes. We break up with brands just like we break up with people. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) That's so funny. Do you know what? You're making me remember the power and the problem that comes when the brand is embodied by a designer or by a figure at the helm, because this obviously is something that people then connect to or disconnect from so much more easily. It really supports what your professor, Suzanne Fournier, was referring to. Yeah. So at the time when I was working with her, we were focusing a lot on Martha Stewart because, you know, Martha Stewart had this Omnimedia brand, which was talk about my learning platform. Her Omnimedia platform was very impressive, but she was definitely at the middle of that, you know, circle diagram where you had the magazine, you have the online website, you have the cookbooks, you have the TV shows. And it was like at the core of it was Martha Stewart. And to what extent can she not be there? And can someone else host a show? And all those kinds of questions were absolutely fascinating. And then what happens when she gets charged with insider trading and goes to jail. What happens with all the Martha Stewart towels that are on the shelf in Walmart? It's a really interesting case. And 
there are other brands that I guess are are not online influencers. I'm thinking of Lance Armstrong, who owned the color yellow, and he was such a hero because he lived the hero's journey. He conquered cancer, right? And then he was a world champion many, many times over. And then people found out that he was, in fact, a complete fraud. And so what do you do with that? (laughs) Actually, this is the perfect segue into another question I wanted to bring up. Because one of my favorite episodes of yours is one of my favorite subjects, which is archetypes. Yeah. Which draws a lot, obviously, into psychology and Carl Jung and, and Joseph Campbell. And you just mentioned the hero's journey. And I was going to ask you, because I am fascinated at my core by mythology since I was a kid and psychology, could you maybe touch on why is the study of archetypes one of the ways that we get to understand the brands and the stories they tell around us? Sure, but and the people around us, right? Oh yeah, so in my personal life, I am the lover (laughs) archetype. And my business is the magician. Ah, okay. Okay. So my, I guess, passion for archetype developed from one of my dissertation committee members, Professor Jerry Zaltman, who's a emeritus professor at Harvard Business School now. And he has some personal intellectual passions. I think his main one is metaphors. And he developed the Zaltman metaphor elicitation technique, where it's a qualitative research technique where you get really insightful information about how and why consumers are thinking about whatever the phenomenon is. So I actually did that. I did some ZMET interviews for the topic of word of mouth when I was doing my dissertation. Very much related to metaphors is this idea of archetypes. So Jerry talks about how our brains are hardwired to think in terms of certain patterns or sort of ways of thinking. And archetypes are just that. Some people go, oh, archetypes, that's fancy. It's like old. It's like, you know, millennia old. And they feel overwhelmed or intimidated by the topic. But if you just think of archetypes simply as universal patterns, so they are understood by all of us. Research shows that across, we're talking about cross-cultural differences, but across cultures, Of course, people may adopt certain archetypes more frequently or more readily than others, but they all exist in all of these cultures and they are common patterns that tell stories about everything. It could be from a trivial anecdote that someone's sharing with you to a life story, to understanding what their personality is or even what a brand is. And that kind of low-hanging fruit is fun when you're watching a movie or a drama series, whatever you're streaming, and to say, oh, I thought this was going to be the hero's journey, but actually this is about how the jester and the lover work together. It's a fascinating way of, I guess, categorizing or classifying stories and people in a way. And the power also, I think, in terms of personal brands and business brands is leveraging the archetype that works for you. So you were saying that you're the lover. So that would mean that you're focused on relationships you're passionate, you're devoted, maybe nostalgic, you're focused on memories and sensual. And I don't mean sensual in a sexual way necessarily, but more like focusing on your senses. Absolutely. Does that all resonate with Every you? Every single yeah. term resonates 100%. So and isn't that magical? It is. It's like doing the Myers-Briggs 
And then understanding, you know, with the Myers-Briggs, there's 16 combinations of those four factors and just understanding that no one is better or worse than the other, but understanding which one you are can just leverage so many opportunities because then you understand where your strengths are and you can pursue them and maybe where your weaknesses are and where you can, I guess, not avoid them, but you can make up for them. You know, you can hire someone to do that other thing, or you can make sure the team around you is covering those bases. And the analogy would be similar for archetypes. So if you understand that about you, then you can leverage them and strengthen them and make that a real meaningful part of your identity. So for me, when I think about the 12 most common archetypes, the one that I really resonate with is the sage, which is a learner, a teacher, more analytical. And I realized that I really fell into this label when someone in a meeting that I was in a couple of years ago, (laughs) such a bad memory, really offended me like really, really offended me. And then I was stewing and stewing and stewing on this. And I thought, this is not productive. What is the issue here? And then I realized this guy thinks I'm an idiot. Oh, okay. And he was talking implicitly, like he was dismissing me. And then I realized this sage part of my identity is so significant that if someone violates it or threatens it, I am beyond upset. And I was like, okay, well, obviously that's the archetype that works for me. It's amazing. And you said that for your brand, Out of the Clouds? Not so much for Out of the Clouds, but it generally wrapped around my identity in business is the magician. And I think that I was nicknamed years ago, the fixer, because I'm really good at making things happen. I find making connections really easy. Uh. So I have a very fast mind. So it's interesting because what's really funny is when I did the alt MBA with Seth Godin four years ago, one of the prompts was to write a very short little mini biography for ourselves. And we were allowed to ask, you know, a cohort member to help us because it's really tough to write about yourself. And so first it was a paragraph and my friend Jack, who's going to be a guest on the show soon, helped me with writing it. And it was nice. It felt right. I still have it somewhere. And it took me maybe a year to then reduce it down to just a few words. And the tagline really is, I like to make magic happen. (laughs) And it's really funny because if you'd asked me before how to get to the essence, I, I wouldn't have ever thought it was so easy. It's amazing when you have that epiphany. It feels like an epiphany, right? It's like, oh, completely. Yeah. That's how I felt when I realized the way this guy was dismissing my, what I thought was intellectual contribution to this meeting. And he dismissed me and I was so upset. And and then I was like, oh, because I'm the stage, of course. And so that would be like violating my whole identity. And wow. And I have to share another anecdote with you. Recently, when I was doing an online corporate workshop, a woman who I knew from previously in my career introduced me and she introduced me in such a thought, you know, talk about being prepared for an interview. She introduced me and she didn't read my bio, right? Like she said, well, let me tell you about Andrea. And she went in and obviously she had some notes in front of her, but I I was impressed. And she, I would say, personified me as the explorer. She said, whenever I think of Andrea, I think of her really being a pioneer in word of mouth. And then she was the first person who brought up the word podcast. And, and I was like, oh, that's true. Oh, that's true. And then I was like, 
And it's really, really nice introduction. Like I thanked her profusely and it was, you know, very insightful, but I was like, that's not really my anchor. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very nice, but you didn't get me. But I was like, I can see how she maybe thought of that. And maybe if I want to be the sage, maybe I need to work on encouraging and advancing and communicating that. So that's some of what I do in my workshops on personal branding. I have five different exercises that I take people through to help them identify, to create and articulate what their personal brand is. And it's fun. One of them is focused on archetypes. And then, so what do you do with it? And it's not that if you're a sage or a lover that you can't also be an explorer, but it's secondary, right? And it's not your core identity. Oh, absolutely. I feel like I have a lot of the sage in me as well, but it definitely is taking a back seat. You know, when I think about the common archetypes for storytelling and for people and for brands, I feel like maybe there's at least three ways that you can kind of categorize. You can say, you know, yes, this is my number one focus in terms of my identity or whatever the story is being told. And then there's some secondary ones that are consistent with your identity, but they're not the main part of your identity. And then there's others that are almost irrelevant. Oh, yeah. So one of them is every person, which is like the hardworking guy next door, girl next door, down to earth. So I would say that's probably almost irrelevant for me. And it's not that I'm crazy, not the girl next door, but it's just irrelevant to my identity. Then other archetypes like the creator, because... I'm an artist and I'm creating content every week for Talk About Talk. I would say that's a strong secondary one for me. And it probably is for you too. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting actually to think about how these interplay and where I think you would be someone to lean on to get support. And I find that something that I'm learning to navigate and I definitely don't have it right yet is which piece of my (laughs) Renaissance life can I share with people in order not to confuse them either, right? Because depending on what you share and how you blend these elements of your own story, and it's almost impossible to communicate this for me seamlessly because it's almost like this is too much information for some people. It is different for different people, but for you to have such a varied background, finding the theme, like You know, some people have a transformation story that becomes, that's really what their personal brand is about. It's about, I had this brutal upbringing and I learned all these lessons and look at me now and I worked hard to overcome them and I had all these obstacles. But for other people, there's a constant theme and kind of identifying what that theme is, which I think is when this woman was introducing me and she was calling me a real pioneer. And so that was like a theme that she had observed over time about me, which goes back to branding. You know, the brand can't be successful if it tries to be everything to everyone. You hear that all the time. That's actually something that I wish more people understood. I was writing about this the other day in my newsletter. I love the Kevin Kelly essay, 1000 True Fans. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That's the second time in two days I heard someone mention him. He has such an impact, right? Absolutely. So you mentioned in passing personal branding and... This is a terminology that I find a little bit hard. And I was listening to Debbie Millman. I think she was interviewed on the TED Radio Hour about a month ago or so. And 
Because obviously she's such a famous branding expert, obviously from a visual standpoint, and I'm sure she's very close to a lot of the brands you must have studied and and be surrounded with. And obviously I really enjoyed your podcast. So for me in particular, who doesn't align with the notion of personal brand, maybe you can help me understand or help my listeners understand who haven't heard as much as I have on the subject. Um, For me, I am a person and I have a business and the business itself can become a brand. What do you mean by personal brand and how can people work on this? Okay, I love this question and I love the topic. So thank you for bringing it up. Here's the thing about personal brands. And I understand there's a lot of discourse out there about dismissing you know, brand strategy frameworks when we're talking about human beings and our careers and personal versus professional brands and all of that. But I just go back to basics. And to me, this is just a framework that really makes sense. And more importantly, it can help us. So the thing is, we all have a reputation or an identity, right? And whether we choose to purposely, strategically manage that identity or that reputation is almost irrelevant. And when I was doing some thinking about this, I I was thinking about our credit scores. We all have a credit score. We have a credit score whether we check it or not, and whether we actively manage it or not, we have a credit score. Just like we have a personal brand. And the definition, the specific definition of a personal brand beyond just saying reputation or identity that I really love is your personal brand is what people think and say about you when you're not in the room. So imagine a boardroom with people, some of whom you've met in person and some of who you haven't, but they'll somehow know you or know of you. And then someone said, oh, maybe we should bring Anne in on this conversation because I feel like blah, 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 whatever. What springs to mind when they hear your name? What is it that they're thinking and saying about you when you're not in the room? And the idea here in advancing our careers and basically helping us to achieve our goals is that if we work to very strategically, and by strategically, I don't mean manipulating, I mean just being very conscious and proactive. If we strategically manage our personal brands in terms of two things, so one is creating it, so articulating, and this is back to all the whole conversation we just had about archetypes, it can be very helpful, but there's all sorts of exercises you can run through. So first, articulating what it is, and then secondly, communicating it. So whether it's offline or online, making sure that everything that you can control is said by you and by other people and implicitly and explicitly. So explicitly would be things like you go to a conference and there's a bio written about you. Like what is the story there? And are people going to understand the main themes and understand your identity and your reputation? Does your headshot, is it consistent? The photograph of you, does it make sense? Does it further confirm and establish that? Or is it confusing? If someone is introducing you to someone, do they know the part of your identity that you're hoping they're going to mention, right? And then implicitly, are you dressing consistently with what you are hoping your identity and your reputation will be? Body language, we were just talking about that. Are your hands, your eyes, and your posture consistent with whatever that identity is? The things that you talk about, the people that you hang out with, the brands that you consume and display, are they consistent? So that's the second part of it. So there's the creating it or articulating it. And then secondly, there's the 
communicating it. And I feel like this is really my sweet spot because of my background working as a brand manager at Kraft Foods, where we were basically taken through branding school and we learned to be strategic brand managers. And then my work at Harvard Business School and the research that I did with Susan Fournier and the research that I did on my dissertation. So understanding a lot of social psychology. And then now my work with talk about talk and interpersonal communication skills. I feel like if you intersect those three things, you get to personal branding. So I'm on a mission now to help people explore what their personal brand is and then how to manifest that basically. That makes so much sense. And that renders the entire concept absolutely appealing to me. Now, the one thing I have to say is I can see why you are going to have a lot of work on your hands, aka a lot of clients, because as I mentioned before, I think a lot of us find it very hard to talk about themselves, to really get to the root of their why, to write about themselves eloquently and succinctly and I am assuming that this is something that you're going to be developing and, and supporting groups of people to do, right? Courses, et cetera, because I know that I rely on other people to help me. I can't do this on my own. Of course, yeah. So I'm actually just developing a program for some senior executives all around the world that I'm so excited. And so I've been thinking, is this personal branding topic? I mean, I'd love to hear your take on this. Is it more or less relevant for people who are starting out their career or finishing their career? Is it always relevant? I know as a strategic brand manager, I know that brands evolve. So you're never quote unquote done with your personal brand or done working on it, right? It'll change as the environment changes, as your audience changes, as you have different experiences. But I have this contract now to to work with some senior executives around the world on this. And some one-on-one coaching, I'm really excited to do that too, because we can go in deep. And eventually there will be an online course and also online workshops I'm working on. I'm also exploring different sort of subtopics within personal branding with the podcast and the newsletter. There's one right now that just came out on communicating your personal brand online. And I say, well, it might seem like to some a strange or, you know, they might question, well, why would you start there? I said, well, it's all there for you. So think of it as doing an audit, like Google yourself. And I know I've heard Googling yourself is something that narcissists do. Well, here's the thing. Other people are Googling you. Like I know you Googled me and I Googled you. Don't you think we should also know what happens when we Google ourselves? (laughs) For sure. I have Google alerts for all of my clients. I mean, I need to know what's being said about them. So it sounds logical. Yeah. So that's actually one of the pointers that I bring up in that podcast episode. And I said, oh, and while you're at it, Set up alerts. So when someone posts your name online or searches you, you'll get an alert. And the other thing about that is that is totally separate from your personal brand. That's just smart from avoiding online fraud. You're completely right. I'm so excited that you're going to be doing that course. I was thinking one of the pieces that I would imagine is really important, regardless of how young or experienced you are in business as you consider this. Yeah, what do you think about that? It's two things. First, like you said, consistency. I think as we spread ourselves across various platforms as they pop up, I know that I had a look after listening to your podcast and mine was not particularly inconsistent, but it wasn't highly consistent either. Right. Now, these are light platforms, right? But at the same time, we evolve 
and the platforms evolve and we forget to go and, and check in. Yeah. So yeah. see, I think is really interesting, but it's also that notion of self-awareness. Like, what are you aware of yourself? Mm. What do you want to put out into the world? And I think this is an important piece. And I recognize that probably the reason why a lot of people don't put in the work is because they have to look inwards before they put stuff out in the world. And that's kind of hard. It sure is. You bring up a lot of good points there. It's like as scary for us podcasters. It's going back and listening to episode number two when you're on episode number 70. <laughs> it's so scary to go back there, but you can learn a lot about your, whatever, your transformation. But then back to the personal branding. I was thinking as you were saying that the exercise of articulating and then communicating your personal brand when you're starting out your career versus when you're, you know, a seasoned executive, it would serve slightly different purposes, right? So I think earlier in your career, it might just help you be a little bit more aware that every company you work for, every course you take, every relationship that you develop is kind of like input into this personal brand, right? And then later in your career, I think it's more about being able to really communicate that brand, knowing that it is best suited to meet your own career objectives and so that it'll resonate with whoever the audience is. It's a little bit different in terms of the kind of ultimate objective, or the, I guess the short-term objectives, depending on what stage you're in in your career. You know what that's making me think? It brings me back to Seth Godin and that little bio example because I think the semantics, the words that we use, regardless how short or long the output of content about ourselves, mm -hmm. the words are so important because they can open up opportunities or pigeonhole us. And that's true about businesses and brands as well. Yes. And I can't remember what the example was that he'd leaned on. But imagine that we talk about a luxury car brand. If you describe the brand as we make luxury cars, then you understand it to be as such. But if you say, we take you to your destination or we bring you on a journey, it suddenly completely opens up the evolution of the company. You could open up and start making airplanes or suitcases or anything else. And so I think that there's an interesting play about how much do you want to focus or reduce yourself in the way that you describe yourself as a personal brand or what you want to remain open to. Yeah. So one of the business school cases that I co-wrote with Susan Fournier, back to Susan at Harvard, was a case on how to choose a brand name. And we came up with this process, which I actually ended up using it a lot with clients that I subsequently had after I graduated who were looking for developing a brand name. But we we're talking about the fact that you want, ideally, your brand probably should be descriptive. It just makes it a little bit easy. But that's a decision that you need to make, right? Like Apple is not exactly descriptive of what they're doing, but maybe in some higher level context, you could make some kind of analogy there. But if it's too descriptive, then it can backfire because it limits you. So the example that we use in the case is the Harlem Savings Bank of New York can never do anything else or go anywhere else, right? <laughs> That's so true. But back to the personal branding thing, the culminating exercise for the communicating or articulating your brand segment of that workshop is actually what you just said. It's actually identifying the key words. So what are the key words that you always want to write or say when you're introducing yourself? I'm in. 
<laughs> that sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Well, it goes the same for brands, right? Very interesting. Now, let's switch to a completely different topic because I know that you are also a different kind of artist and you're a painter. You have a beautiful website. First, I need to tell you, when I was a teenager, I and I still am, I'm mesmerized by seascape and water in general. And yeah. so I love that. And you had two other paintings, Barry's Desert and the Milky Way, which were absolutely stunning. So tell me about this. First of all, how did you discover this and, and how do you keep this alive? Because you sound like you're busy and, and you have a family as well. Yeah, I haven't been painting as much as I... I was going to say as I wish to, but I've made a conscious decision not to. So I should be careful with my words. I haven't been painting as much as I have in the past, but I'm exercising my creativity in other ways. So that's kind of how I reconcile that in my mind. When I was in high school, art and math were my two favorite subjects. And I really thought I was going to be a fashion designer, actually. When I was in grade 12, I won a scholarship and I said to my parents that I wanted to go to Paris and go to fashion design school. And my dad said, why don't you get a university degree first in North America? And then if you want to do that, I will definitely foot the bill. And I said, okay. And then I, you know, I got sucked into marketing and I love it. But I always had this creative side and I love color. I love color. If you could see behind me, my bookshelves are color-coded. I have a yellow shelf, a red <laughs> shelf, a blue shelf. Anyway, I love color and I also love water. And I had a friend who unfortunately died of brain cancer. And when he was really sick, the last conversations that I had with him was about life regret. And he actually said to me, don't be the person who ends up with regrets and things that you can't fulfill when you can't. And I, I went home and I was like, okay, so I have a great family, a loving husband, amazing kids. I've traveled, like all these things that people you know, typically regret. I've got, I've got all those things. I have such an abundant life. And in the back of my head, there was this voice saying, paint, paint, paint. <laughs> I signed up for painting lessons at a studio that's near my house. And I went in, started with once a week. And then I loved it so much. I started going twice a week. And then I started doing art shows and selling the paintings. And the painting that you pointed out, Barry's Desert Stars, was actually commissioned. So this woman emailed me a photograph of some photos that her husband had taken in Arizona of the sky with the Milky Way above the desert. And she said, if this inspires you, I want to hire you to paint it as a surprise Christmas gift for my husband. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is amazing. <laughs> okay. So I started experimenting on different canvases. And when I started to see stuff that I liked, I painted two or three. And then I said, here's my output. And if you like whatever. I always, when I do commissions, I say there's absolutely no requirement to purchase anything at the end because I'm not going to paint anything that I don't love. And I'm really not painting to sell. I'm painting because I love the process. And anyway, so she ended up buying the one that we ended up calling Barry's Desert Stars. And the Milky Way one I actually gave to my sister. She has it in her bedroom. That's such a nice story. It's, first of all, I relate to it because as I told you before, I pursued a career as a singer for a long time. And one of the conscious decisions I made when I became a consultant was that I would have to make room for music in my life. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard at the beginning because I was used to doing crazy hours at the office and working weekends and 
So it took me a while to actually really force myself and fit it in. So even if it's 15 minutes or 20 minutes of just playing piano or doing vocal warm-ups, I try to fit it in every day or six out of seven days. And it makes a really big difference in my life, I think. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was thinking, so what is it about these creative pursuits? Is it just that we are creating? I think there's something to that, right? Humans have a need. We have an innate need to create something. And then maybe there's like the artistry. So putting our personal stamp on it somehow, like your voice, my color, my brush stroke, whatever. So there's that. But there's also, when I'm really into painting, I wake up thinking about it really. And I, and I find myself getting into flow when I paint. I'll be in my living room. So this was pre-COVID when my kids were at school, my husband was at work and I was working at home. And then one afternoon a week, like Thursday afternoon, between one and four, I would paint. And I would more often than not find myself experiencing flow. I'm sure you can appreciate this as a mindfulness coach and who teaches meditation. It's just, you have this, like, I don't know how to describe it. This moment, it's so visceral and it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, you know, the definition of flow, you lose track of time and space and everything. And it's just like, you're in your brain, you're in your body. I'm one with the canvas and the paint. And it's just, I don't know what the word is, a heavenly experience. I don't know. It's, it is spiritual in some way. When I feel that often enough, I sometimes start to wake up and think about painting. (laughs) Like, oh, I got an idea for a painting. And, you know, right now with this week, or this month, this quarter, I guess, I'm waking up thinking about things related to personal branding and communication skills coaching, honestly, in a very similar way. That's amazing. Because you mentioned it before, and I appreciated it because I knew I was going to get to this question. But you are right, there is an artist and a creator in you as you create the program and think of, you know, the contribution that you're going to make to the people who are going to participate in it. I think so. I believe that. And I I think some people may use that as an excuse to not explore something creative in their life. But I think as a artist and a painter who's, who's been in art shows, I've sold paintings, I've had commissioned paintings. And so I know what that feels like. I actually think it's very similar for me when I'm creating content for Talk About Talk in a really good way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. I'm lucky. I'm really lucky. (laughs) You've given me a lot of your time. So I'm going to ask you just a couple of more questions and then we'll have some short, quick fire, as you call them as well. I want to know, you've earned a black belt in what? Taekwondo. (laughs) Wow. I know. That's crazy. You're very accomplished. Just want to say. I did that with my son. I just just have to give you the quick backstory on that. I did it with my son. My kids were all signed up for Taekwondo and then my eldest was going through the belts pretty fast. And I was like, instead of sitting and watching him, I'm going to do it with him. And I started doing it. And so he and I, at the very end, we almost didn't get it because it's a lot of work at the end, but we really motivated each other. So we did it together. That is fantastic. I'd love to ask you more questions about that, but let's not get distracted. Yeah, keep moving. So turning to mindfulness, obviously because the podcast for me is at the crossroads between business and mindfulness and meditation. I was curious to ask you, what are the practices that ground you in your daily life? And have you found anything specific that really has worked for you during the difficult period that we've been going through? Yeah. So I anticipated this question and I was thinking, I have never, ever taken a meditation class 
or really even explored it. I haven't really searched it online or anything. And I am curious. So I haven't done that, but I would love to. You're probably a good person for me to learn from in that regard. One thing that has helped me over the last year with the pandemic, you know, I live in Toronto, Canada, and we're in lockdown right now. So the numbers are pretty bad and we don't leave to do anything really other than getting groceries. And even that, I order it and I open the trunk, drive to the store, they drop them in the back and I drive away. That's it. So one thing that, and this is not mindfulness and this is not meditation, but just a strategy or tactic that's really worked for me and I'm trying to help my family with this too, is keeping checklists. So I have written on cardboard in the kitchen the five members of my family and then all the days across. It's like a matrix and you check off two things every day. One is, did you get outside? And two is, did you exercise? And you know, there's so many other things that could go on the checklist. And for me personally, I have a checklist that I use before I go to bed where I check off all these wellness things and nutrition and exercise and mental health. And I because I know that that really worked for me, but I don't want to drive my family crazy and becoming the checklist lady. But so I, I was like, okay, if there were two things, what would it be? You need to get outside and you need to work out and you can decide what working out looks like. It can be a yoga practice. It can be running around the block. It can be going for a walk with a friend, but you have to, you know, raise your heartbeat, do something. And I think that kind of really prioritizing the fundamentals has helped us to some extent. And I personally find it motivating. And then the other thing is celebrating things that otherwise may not have been so conscious of. So not hesitating to get out the china. I think I've gotten our fine china and our silverware more frequently over the last year than I have in the last 10 years because I'm like, well, if ever there was a time that I was going to set the table with the fine china, it should be now because we need to be celebrating each other and having fun things. And so that's just another thing that I think is helping us a little bit. It's tough though. I, you know what I say to people is when they say, how are you really? I say, we're surviving, but not thriving. Yeah. I hear you across all points that you've just made. Yeah. You and I may be simpatico, Anne. Yeah. yeah. I have a checklist for myself every morning. <laughs> Do you? Oh, I, you know what? I want to see yours. <laughs> I handwrite it after my morning pages. So yeah, sure. I can share it with you. It started by being one and a half lines. So it's meditation, pranayama, affirmations, intention. And that's like, I have to do that every day. That's the given. And then there's workout. And there's a separate one with yoga because yoga and working out for me are not necessarily the same. Yeah. Because I can do restorative yoga or yin, and that's not the same as elevating the heartbeat. And there are days where draping myself over a big bolster and putting a blanket over my shoulders is just the thing I need, you know? I get it. I get it. But then I continue to add to it. Like, did I write every day? Did I study every day? And I don't need to do all of it, but I keep track. And I know that these things make me happy and make me feel alive, accomplished, connected to myself or to a purpose. It became a ritual without wanting to make it one. Two things there. One is that having a ritual or like a schedule, right, is really important right now because otherwise with people working at home, other than getting up for meetings or maybe doing podcast interviews that are at a specified time, a lot of people are just like 
they've totally lost track of time and it's really not healthy. It's not good for them physically or mentally and oh, right? Yeah, I hear you. I mean, listen, I didn't stay in sweatpants during the pandemic, but that's because I've already been working from home for a while. So I think that I already have had the conversation with myself as to what I wanted my life to be. And I realized that in that way, I'm way advanced compared yeah. to most people. Um, but I find that cleaning the house and being wearing nice clothes, if comfortable, because, you know, if I'm just going to sit at home, really does help my mood as well. A big deal. And actually, smiling, as you were saying, you know, it changes the temperature in your state. So when I'm on a long Zoom call, sometimes one of the things I try to pull at is actually, you know, move up the corners of your mouth and smile at the people in front of you. And when you actually raise your own energy levels, it tends to raise the room even when it's virtual. Oh, for sure. I don't know if you've experienced this, but sometimes I forget it's a Zoom call. Oh, yeah. I get in flow state. Yeah, I think I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Some people might think I'm really weird because they all hate it. I'm not saying it's true about every call. Yeah. It happens for me in interviews and, and also when I'm conducting workshops, for sure. Couple of quick questions to finish, if that's okay. Okay. So, and this is even more interesting because you are so versed in communication. What is your favorite word? My favorite word lately is indeed. Okay. Yeah. So I know this might sound strange. So I moderate a Facebook group called Talk About Talk Communication Skills, right? And so we have a theme every month. And actually for January, it was words. And that was one of the questions that I asked people, what's your favorite word? What is the word that when you hear other people say it, you say to yourself, gosh, I wish I said that more often because it sounds, I don't know, smart, good, whatever. And for me, it's indeed, I never say it. Whenever I hear it, I always think, gosh, that person sounds cool. <laughs> so, you know, I, if I, for example, say something, I give advice, whatever, offer a suggestion, and someone says, indeed, I go, oh, gosh, I wish I said that. That's awesome. I love it in writing as well. Don't you think it's also lovely when it's written? Absolutely. Yeah. To me, I think the reason I like it is because it sounds like the person is whether they say it verbally or write it, it sounds like they're open-minded and they're being positive. They're building on the other person's idea. Like, indeed, you know, <laughs> I love it. That's brilliant. I think you already answered this question. What did you want to be when you grew up? You wanted to be a fashion designer, if I'm correct. I wanted to be a fashion designer and on and off, I also seriously considered being an architect. In fact, I applied to university for both business school and architecture. And so I had to make a decision. Anyway, architecture was the other one. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to your younger self if you could send yourself a message? Ooh, you know, I kind of look back at my young, innocent, naive self. And I think, you know, she did pretty good. She did quite well. She was incredibly naive. I don't know. Maybe I would have taken a personal branding course. No, I'm kidding. One thing that I told my mom I regretted was I wish I had played a team sport. I was a competitive figure skater, you know, all the way through high school. And I know for sure it taught me independence and initiative and discipline, especially discipline. But I always, especially since I've had kids and I'm seeing the pros and cons of signing them up for various activities, I really admire the core learnings that people acquire 
from participating in team sports. And I wish I had that experience. So I would have said, go for the basketball team, maybe not the figure skating. (laughs) That's awesome. What book is next to your bed or on your desk? Oh, this changes frequently. The one that's on my night table beside my bed that I do read, even if it's just a paragraph, if I'm exhausted or many chapters, if I'm not, is Obama's book, uh, Promised Land. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm not surprised because I admire him and I absolutely love biographies and autobiographies. It's an easy book to read in the sense that, you know, not necessarily his vocabulary or his writing style, but he's just a good storyteller. And I'm giving myself permission to skip chapters when he gets into nuance of U.S. politics that I'm maybe less familiar with or less interested in, but I'm really enjoying it. And I feel like it's a very generously written book where he says in the preface that his goal was to provide an accessible story of his experience so people understand what it's really like to run for president and then to be president. And I think he does a great job of that in this book. I admire him a lot. That's one that's on my list. Who is one person that you think we should all know about? A politician, a writer, it could be a musician, a journalist, or an activist? I love this question. I think this is a really good question because I think it's revealing. And then when a person answers it, it shows something about them maybe. And there's one person who I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with her, but I think she's absolutely fascinating. And I think we can all learn something from her. And that's Catherine Graham. So she's the Washington Post publisher back in the late 1900s. And I guess she died in 2001, but I read her biography twice. I read her biography right around when she passed away. And it's called Personal History and it's huge. It's a big book, but I devoured it. And it was like, I was so sad when it was over and I learned so much. She's got so much breadth and depth to her. She was, you know, obviously the publisher of the Washington Post, but this came to her Her father owned it and published it, and then he passed it on to her husband, who had mental health and addiction issues. And when he died, she took it over de facto, and then she formally took it over, and then she ran it with such presence and power and thoughtfulness. And she, you know, she changed journalism. She was there for the Watergate scandal. And this was a woman, right, in the 1960s and 70s. And can you even imagine? And she was dealing with politics. Right. And to what extent should journalists and and the media be involved in politics and all that stuff that is relevant today? And of course, women's live. And she had, I think, three, maybe four, but at least three kids while all this was happening. I mean, she's just a force and incredible. And she's very, very, very pragmatic. If you've ever seen her or read her, she's very pragmatic, but incredibly inspiring and so impressive and yet humble. So. Everyone should know about Catherine Graham. That sounds fantastic. I've heard about her. I've heard someone, has there been a TV series or a movie done recently about her? Yeah, Meryl Streep starred in, I think it's called Post, actually. Ah, okay, that's why I, of course, I haven't seen it, but that would be, I assume that would be why I've heard her, I think, interviewed on one of the US chat shows like Stephen Colbert or, you know, one of those. I am so glad you said that because you're so eloquent about it. I am absolutely putting that one in the basket. I convinced my book club 
maybe three or four years ago to read it because we had this thing. Okay. So the next books we're going to read, let's go around the table and everyone choose your favorite book of all time that you're probably so familiar with. And we're going to all read it and talk about it. And I was like, guys, you're going to hate me for this. Cause I don't know how many pages it's like 700 pages or something, but I read it a second time. And I was like, because it was 15 years later, I got a totally different perspective on reading it, but I still loved it. And I still had such admiration for her. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. That brings us to the last question, which is one of my favorites. What brings you happiness? I think two things. If I'm allowed to say two things. Of course. If I had to choose one, it would be hugs from my kids. It would be when my son, who's 17, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, mom, and hugs me. Oh, gosh. Or, you know, whatever. I have three kids. And whenever one of them, I'm just saying that because he did that this morning and surprised me. And I was like, oh, this is so nice. Maybe during COVID, it's even more nice. But being hugged by my kids and like when they don't let go, that's just amazing. In my professional life, it's definitely teaching. I get a high from teaching, you know, especially when I can see the wheels turning and I can see people nodding their head. And and then when I get feedback saying this is really making a difference for me, that is incredibly satisfying. Makes me very happy. Thank you so much. You gave me so much of your time and I had so much pleasure. It was a wonderful conversation. It was. I enjoyed it so much. And I thank you for your time and for listening to me. (laughs) Brilliant. Have a fantastic rest of your day. And for people to find you online, I think that it's talkabouttalk.com. Am I correct? Yep. That's the easiest way. Everything's there. And I'm on LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you, Anne. Thanks again to Andrea for being my guest on the show today. You can find her online at talkabouttalk.com and on Instagram at talkingabouttalk.com. All of the other links are, of course, included in the show notes, as well as the one to discover Andrea's online course to help you manage your emails. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you will join us again next time. Our theme music is by Connor Heffernan, artwork by Brian Ponto, And I want to extend special thanks to Pete and Joel for editing and sound. You can soon find all of my episodes and find out more about my projects at annvmulatalo.com. If you don't know how to spell it, that's okay. It's also in the show notes. Or you can also look up outoftheclouds.com. Sign up to receive updates on all the fun things I'm doing. The site will be live very soon. You can also follow the show on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds. If you can, I would love it if you would rate and review the show on iTunes. It really does help people find it and I would appreciate it very, very much. Until next time, be well, be safe. Please remember the hand washing, please wear the mask and look after each other, you know, all of that good stuff. Thank you so much.